Hayu podcast, brought to you by Hayatin Education. I'm Matthew Hayatin, and today I'm talking with Dr. Rita Eichenstein, a pediatric neuropsychologist and author of Not What I Expected, Help and Hope for Parents of Atypical Children. Rita's here to help us recalibrate our expectations for all our children, especially those with learning differences. I had so much fun reading your book again with this new lens, oh. and especially as a parent again, and so... So thank you again for being here, Rita. It's so, so thoughtful of you to join me. It's such an honor and a delight. And, you know, speaking of that book, I couldn't have thought of a better title for 2020. No one could have thought of a better title than Not What I Expected. It is pretty perfect. And it even reminded me of that old but fabulous book um, for new parents, What to Expect When You're Expecting. And I thought, I know that wasn't your intention, but it, it made me think about why it's such a perfect title, because however typical or atypical our children might be, I, I don't know that any kid turns out how we might expect. There's always that idealization and that hope and of what could be, but I think we should define operationally for listeners what you mean by typical or atypical um, so that we can kind of have that framework for the chat that we're going to have right now. Well, that's a very interesting question because... Um, what is typical and atypical? So when I was conceptualizing the book, this was a couple of years ago, the world has changed since then. Um, and the way we view neurotypical and atypical has also changed. It's become much more inclusive and much more embracing of all different types of brains. And I think we've moved a, a far distance in the last five years, especially. So, um, I really define atypical as something that happens in the parent's mind in terms of their preparation for children. We know intellectually that children come in all shapes and sizes and colors and personalities. We are intellectually prepared for everything. Our limbic system, our emotional response is prepared for nothing, absolutely nothing. And the higher educated, uh, more uh, overdeveloped one's intellect is, the less prepared they are, usually. Unless you grew up on a farm, raised animals, or grew up in a family of 10 kids and helped your mom and had close observation with them. Um, the modern working adult is largely unprepared to cope with the emotional uh, uh, tsunami of having a child. So what is very reassuring to parents is Dr. Google. So that is, should my child be um, saying words by 10 months old? What should my child be doing by six months old? Very reassuring to go into Google and find, oh, so my child is exactly what we expected. But sooner or later, Sometimes immediately, sometimes, you know, it takes a few years or up to 10 years. Sooner or later, every child has a fall from grace in the eye of our parents. It's heartbreaking to see your child developing along the human path because the hard news to grasp is that we mortals, by definition of being human, we are imperfect. And we come with our strengths and our flaws. And we know that about ourselves. It takes our whole life to ex be accepting of ourselves with our strengths and our flaws. 
but to see your child developing and see the strengths and the flaws or the challenges, or I prefer in my neuropsych practice, I call it superpowers and construction zones. But to see that evolving has an emotional response in the parent. That's great. I want to get into some of those phases that you often see in parents in your own practice that you have a lot of really hands-on tips for moving through those stages toward an active acceptance and a real alignment with who we are and who our kids are so we can love and accept each other and meet, a, meet each other, you know, where we are. You know, you talk about some of the emotional paralysis or denial that some parents sometimes experience when confronted with this dissonance between what they expected and what they're experiencing. Um, it could be that they're sitting on your couch for a feedback session, having received a neuropsychological evaluation. It could be something that happens in their own nest. But I think we should talk about this challenge when parents get stuck, really oh, yeah. badly stuck, how do they get unstuck? Like what would be the first step? And I know that'll lead us into the different emotional phases of grief and yeah. acceptance. Yeah, it's really, yeah, we got to talk about denial. I mean, first of all, denial, you have to understand, denial is a mechanism that saves us. Denial allows us to go through our life. Um, healthy denial is life-saving. You cannot go through life constantly thinking about global warming, nuclear power, terrorism. Um, how long is this planet going to be? You just cannot. You have to go into a mode of somewhat denial. And there's an emotional denial of going through your day. You have to say, you have to have some techniques to shield yourself. But what happens when you're overshielded? So there's a concept of homeostasis where everyone makes deals with themselves. Uh, all right, we're okay. This family's okay. My, on my job, I can pay the bills. The kids are going to this school. We're all going to be okay. And then comes the spouse or the doctor or the teacher or the kid saying, something's not okay, I need an evaluation. And the person who is in charge of balancing the homeostasis for the family will go, we have a brilliant son, we know he's brilliant because this is what, this is, look what he's doing. And the teachers are terrible, they're telling us things, this is not our son, you know, so there's a lot of denial. Um, getting the info so the first the first thing i do is i come off the throne of the neuropsychologist expert and meet parents in a very human place of we're making this plan together this is team timmy this is not i'm not god and we're not playing god we are working together to figure out how this evaluation is going to be helpful for timmy to make him the best Timmy he can be. And creating a relationship with parents is the first step to uh, unraveling the denial because denial is very powerful and it's underneath the denial is pain. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bring that sensitivity and, and a lot of empathy for the role because I really found the book helpful regardless of whether you have an atypical or typical kid because you're gonna be faced with some challenges and some moments where maybe you're not thrilled with what you're seeing or experiencing, you're hoping it would be different. And right. I think those phases of emotion still play out. So, you know, whether you think of it as grief, like the death of the idealized child, the loss of who you thought that kid was, 
Let's go through the phases really fast and just sure. unpack them for the listeners so they kind of have those fresh in their minds. Um, the next step is anger. So in the grocery store example, once you're, you're done freezing, your limbic system, which is your defensive system, steps in to help and you hit rage. It's the angry papa bear who disturbed my cave. Um, and so immediately you are going to get anger. This is a very difficult phase. Um, sooner or later, parents will be angry. They're going to blame somebody or something. Like either the doctor's an idiot or if they're kind, polite people, you know, it's the society is bad or the worst is they start to blame themselves. But we'll hang on. We'll hang yeah, on. we'll get back to blaming themselves and each other later. Yeah. Huh? Okay. yeah, but shooting the messenger is classic. And that's why I tell professionals when you get a hostile parent, it doesn't mean they're hostile. They're going through a series of emotions. It actually means that some of this is starting to penetrate. And it's so hard to have a neuroatypical child if your mindset is not set towards differences. If you're still very much concerned about fitting in with the neighbors or your society or your cookie cutter family, this is going to be really hard to integrate. And so, but that can be acted out towards the child too. So there's a really nasty little statistic that like, I don't know that 50% of, of special needs kids have been a victim of abuse of some kind. And well, that's a staggering number. I haven't, I hadn't heard that. You can imagine that when kids are not responding the way the parent thinks they should respond, we all know angry parents. It hurts to see. They don't see themselves that way. Okay, so bargaining is actually my favorite because that's where Dr. Google starts stepping in and where the snake oil salesman starts stepping in because no one is more gullible than a parent in bargaining. They will do anything to help their kid. And that includes doing some pretty odd things based on some conviction that this is going to help. Most of us are involved in our careers, which is probably not medical research. Um, we're busy putting food on the table, running the home, being there for our kids. And we can't do that. That's why we hire experts. So I know that like you and me, we've devoted a great part of our career to figuring out how to help kids. And we've come up with ideas where they're not the best ideas in 10 years, there may be new ideas, but I encourage parents not to turn their kid into a lab rat. Um, yeah, I appreciate that Rita. And also I think it's such a fragile time. And so when families are on this journey to discover and accept who they're loving and living with, who they're raising, if things go sideways and they have a really bad experience with the wrong person, um, someone just put out a shingle, it can shut down the whole process. And then they, they don't continue, which is obviously tragic as well, right? Because we've still got to get into the depression stage and active acceptance. So I'm sure some people could get arrested in any of these phases, you know, if they make a wrong turn somewhere and just sort of calcify. Well, and there, and since I always support parents, I want to say there's oftentimes very good reasons. They will try something and it won't work. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. 
they, we like, let's say I have five different recommendations, medication and therapy, um, OT, you know, speech, social skills. So they try a couple I, and I get emails from parents that say, I'm doing everything I can at six months later and I'm still tearing my hair out. That's sort of heartbreaking. And, but we know that that's true because we know that kids don't turn around and become those perfect angels that fast. If ever, you just go with what you know, put one foot ahead of another, maintain your compassion for yourself and for your child, because underneath every intervention has to have compassion, patience, an open mindset. Let's keep working. Let's keep seeing what happens. Occasionally, I say you have to hire and fire. You are the CEO or the commander in chief of your army. I say it takes it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes an army to raise an atypical child. And you're in charge, and you hire your officers and your commanders and your foot soldiers. And sometimes they work, and sometimes, uh, or they'll work for a while. And sometimes you have to tweak it a little bit. You can always come back to me. Let's retweak. Let's let's talk about it. Um, and I understand. So the discouragement, which is leads into the next step, and that's the depression. So after you've tried everything, you've gotten the news, there will come inevitable depression. And that's probably where the arrest is. The emotional arrest is depression. When you've tried and nothing, you feel nothing's working or you have a setback. Setbacks happen. The whole class graduates except for your kid. You know, those kinds of setbacks. Sure. You get told you've got to switch schools, perhaps. Could be anything. Something you weren't expecting that just feels like, you know, more of a shoot than a ladder, right? Well, so you, so we've just jumped into acceptance, didn't we? So, I guess we kind of did. Sorry about that. Oh, I love acceptance. It was once I hit writing acceptance, I felt like, I could write a whole other book about what active acceptance is and how to embrace the child you have and rise to the occasion. Rising to the occasion is exactly the gift of the whole process. Having a child that's neuroatypical has become a gift that's allowed you to become a whole different person that you wouldn't necessarily have been. It humanizes you. It makes you compassionate. It widens your lens. It helps you learn coping techniques that you would not have had to learn till now. In other words, you become one of these wise warriors. And it's really a gift if you let it. So it's like active acceptance. If you embrace and let this in, you become a person that you couldn't have envisioned that you would become. So I wrote that chapter to be as inspirational as possible because through my years, I've seen these parents who were not, did not expect this, were unprepared for this, took it step at a time, and they not always had the best coping mechanisms. Not always at all. They went through hysteria, grief, what am I going to do? Reaching for help, finding their army until they come to a place where, okay, I get it. This is who my kid is and I can rise. And so I give examples of people who have risen beyond just their kid. They actually become experts so they can help others. 
And it's amazing. This is the bedrock of our society of helping neurodivergent kids are these adults who have been there, done that, and have that energy to rise and help all of us. I want to read a quote from the book that's tied to this, actually. I, I think it's so important that people shift their, their mindset. I know it's a growth mindset to say, look what I've gained in raising this child. Look how I've evolved. Look what I've learned. What, look what they've taught me. But yeah. I thought there was an interesting sort of role reversal in the quote I'm going to read for the listeners near the end of the book, and then we'll move forward. But I want people to hear this, and that is this quote from Eureka. The most important place you will find the strength to go forward is in your relationship with your child. That child has already been your teacher, your guide, and your inspiration. That really resonated with me. And I, I think that that's a completely revolutionary way to think about a child that you might at first glance think of as nothing but challenge, struggle, sorrow. You, you could choose to define that and really limit yourself. If you, you could really go down the wrong road or, or this right. other one. Oh, the idea of being a choice. Yes. It is. There is a choice. Exactly. Unbelievably so. It sounds sort of trite, but it's not. It's very deep when you realize that you have a choice. Life throws you events and you have a choice of how you're going to react to them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think that's true. And I was wondering, going back to that moment you mentioned earlier in our talk about maybe you're, you're in your office and you're not on your throne, you're face-to-face -face with the family and you're sharing some news that's hard to hear, hard to digest. Have you ever had to address this possible tension that they might feel between your desire to demystify what's happening and name it and have them own it versus what they might think of or misperceive as a stigmatization with diagnoses, labels, I'm wondering if there's some sort of delta between those two that you could address, because I think that's another challenge that a lot of folks face. Oh, yes. The world of stigma. Absolutely. It's real. Thank you for raising that, because, yeah, I'm sure um, as much as I think we're enlightened in 2021 and things are destigmatized, it's very frightening to receive a label. No one likes any kind of diagnoses. Very frightening because there's something about a label that, that packs authority. It means the gods have decided that your child is this label. It's terrifying. We don't like labels. Um, and unfortunately, these labels are so inexact. Not only do they carry too much power, but they're so inexact and they've become so broad that totally different kids with different presentations can have the same label. So if you knew um, Johnny down the street who has severe autism and needs 24 seven caretaking and is nonverbal um, and you know, in a special school um, and with assisted communication, you know, the, the, receiving a diagnosis of autism in your child who sort of looks okay, is terrifying. Does that mean my kid? I mean, the parent mind moves very quickly ahead because their their frontal lobe is overdeveloped. So it's like, oh my God, what does that mean? Are they going to be able to get married? Are they going to be able to have a job? Are they going to, and I get this all the time. The other diagnosis that's really weird is ADHD. 
So we've got ADHD kids who are completely all over the place, like, like, uh, and super troublemakers that everyone knows. We all went to school with those kids, you know, and then you have sweet little Susie who's sitting there. How can she have ADHD? She's just like, a sweetheart. Yeah, but inside her mind, she's on clouds, not paying attention. Her body is so restless internally that she like to jump out of her chair. She just doesn't because she's sweet little Susie. So um, those are really confusing and scary diagnoses. And the learning discipline, and then dyslexia, which is what I call the invisible diagnosis, makes no sense. You know, the parents convinced they could read if they wanted to. They just don't want to. Uh, makes no sense because they're smart. They're doing everything and they're just not learning how to read. Um, and so it's scary. How is my child going to get through life with a diagnosis? Well, sooner or later, we all have some sort of diagnosis and we survive. Um, and then there's the, you know, genetic disorders. That's multiple. So I have to give five different diagnoses. Um, um Right. And there's that tension, too, uh, on the on the side of, say, services, folks who are looking for services through insurance or through a public school system. Those diagnoses play a certain role in playing the game of accommodation and self-advocacy, whereas other times it's about what does it mean for the child and for the family, right? And, and I appreciate your saying that. I, I try to coach families sometimes and students when they're of age to not think of it as some sort of life sentence, to be able to own it. But to get to a place of acceptance that's active enough to say, this is who I am, this is how I learn, this is what I need, because that's powerful and there's nothing to apologize for. And, and sometimes I also tell folks, I don't know if you think of it as perhaps this is too much of a, a whitewash or an oversimplification. I'm curious what you're going to say about this, Rita, but this idea that something like ADHD, could you think of it as a trait? Would that be helpful to you? For some, it might be. Uh -huh. Something you, you you contend with. Uh -huh. It comes with certain superpowers as well, by the way. That's just like dyslexia. Some challenges too, but it's not maybe your defining, you know, origin story. It's not your your ultimate label and namesake. Yes. I'm so glad you're talking about that because what I st have started to do in the last um, year, and it's so enriching, is that for each kid that gets an evaluation from me or my associates, I write them a letter, a personal letter, um, acknowledging, you know, how the job they did. Here's your, here's what I learned about you. Here are some of your superpowers. Here are some of your challenges or construction zones. And here's the game plan that I've talked to your parents about. And, you know, it's illustrated depending on the age. I, sometimes I'll show them a picture of the brain in their letter. Um, where I can explain it. And um, because the first question that a parent has, or one of the first is, what do I tell my kid? So, um, and kids don't like coming into a meeting and sitting on the hot seat and talking about them. They really don't. So having a letter they could read by themselves or read with their parents afterwards is like very informative. And then they can take that information to you. So, or to some of your associates, and they can read it together and take it apart and say, what does that mean to you? I love that because it's intimate, but it also sets the stage, Rita, for the journey, right? 
I can do this. I have a roadmap. I have help. I have myself. This doesn't have to just be some sort of dark chapter where I met with someone, some diagnoses were handed down, and now I need to recover from sort of some sort of trauma, right? It's, it doesn't need to be that. And I think so many times, um, you know, kids don't get empowered because deep down, while they might not want to be in the hot seat, as you put it, they still know that they have some challenges and it might be a relief to finally understand why and that there are solutions. There, there are things to do. I yeah. think that can be really exciting rather than so damning. Right. Not every child will be able to open up their defense, their tightly defended mind. You know, it's interesting that probably the hardest, most tightly defended kids I see are the ones with dyslexia. That one uh, is so shaming, not being able to read. And ironically, the kids with a disorder of written expression, they keep that hidden that is so shaming, I have found, which is interesting because um, you can be super bright, but if you have this, a few, they self-stigmatize themselves. And so my goal in doing neuropsych is that it become a fun, interesting experience, not traumatizing. So you can see, I keep it fun. We, I, we have to have, life has to be fun. Yeah, I think a lot of the kids who come see you, I, I can sense that they're on that that road to self-advocacy when they can talk about themselves and what they need. And it's a beautiful thing to witness. And I, I'm curious, it must be so hard both as a clinician and, and just as a fellow human and parent, mother, every role you, you, you have to think about the COVID effect when you're trying to norm these kids and use your clinical eye to distill what's happening are you challenged by the fact that with all these kids being out of school on Zoom, et cetera, having experienced certain losses, are you finding it's harder to either diagnose them or at least contextualize what you're seeing because of this, this phenomenon, and we'll call it, that's not, there's no data for? You know, right? I feel like we need to start a whole new podcast on this subject. Can you That's see I'm smiling yeah. broadly? You're smiling yeah, for COVID sure. COVID has turned the DSM upside down. It Interesting. COVID has turned That's everything upside down. I am at a loss um, at what I'm seeing, particularly with kids who have um, been socially isolated, traumatized, um, lacked the normative developmental experience that's really important for certain age groups, like, you know, the four, five, six, sevens, the, or the teenagers, and we're seeing some pretty severe outcomes. Um, and it's happened that some kids, I just say, I, well, not a lot, but some I say, I cannot diagnose, go get them treated for XYZ, come back in six months. That's a really thoughtful approach because there's so much that's situational. And how can you distill that from what was already innate? How, how could you possibly know? You cannot. The DSM, I hate to say, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, th I think we need a DSM-6 really quick because some of these, uh, we're upside down. I'm not willing to give a lifelong diagnosis to a kid that's gone through a year and a half of social isolation. Um, but Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. We can qualify what I'm seeing and I can give recommendations about what to do. Just the diagnosis might be temporary. 
Yeah, provisional in some way. That totally makes sense. That's honest. Yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. I think that's really important for families to hear. Um, so it will be a part two. I will have to revisit this another day. We will have, I will be happy to go through the COVID brain, uh, all my theories, uh, <laughs> part two. Hopefully when, when we do that, we'll be a little further along in, um, in vaccination as well. Hopefully we'll be even in a better place even than today on that front. Right. Can we give a plug to get vaccines here? We certainly can. Let's Please. do that. Please don't hesitate to get the vaccine. The sooner everyone is vaccinated, the healthier our society will be. There's some estimates that a large percentage of kids going to school are going to be infected with COVID. Um, and we only have ourselves to blame as a society for not getting the vaccine rates up high enough. And feel totally free agree. to that out if you need to. I just want to thank you again for all you do in the community. I know how many lives you've touched with your work. And, and I think this book also is, is a real legacy that that those who maybe don't have the resources to work with you one to one for a full evaluation, they can still learn a lot from your from your book. So thank you oh, again thank for you. that labor of love. I can only imagine how hard it was to write. Oh, it was a labor of love. It just flowed. I just, uh, I mean, I dug in. It was actually, uh, it was a labor of love. And I love doing it. And Okay. Well, it was such a treat to talk to you. And thank you again for your time, Rita. Awesome. Thank you. What a pleasure. You're such an intelligent uh, interviewer. And, and, and uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. We could brainstorm forever. Oh, my God. Thanks. That's so sweet of you. To learn more about Rita's work and services, check out our website, drritaeikenstein.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Hey You Podcast.